Today is going to be a difficult sermon. That's why they gave it to me. So I've got my flak jacket on under here. Before we begin, let's set some ground rules. We elders often say, you know, if we say it clear enough and loud enough and long enough, it won't be misheard. That's an aspiration. It has never been true. So uh, we're going to begin with a little mantra, okay? It's, you, know, you can repeat after me. God is absolutely sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign, okay? That's one half of attention that we are supposed to hold at all times. You hold on to both of those at the same time, okay, with no inconsistency. The other end of that spectrum is this one. I am absolutely responsible. I am absolutely responsible. And therefore, God is absolutely sovereign, but God is not the author of sin. Okay, so uh, just, just want to make sure we're clear on this point before we begin. Okay, today's sermon is God over all. Let's open with prayer. Lord God, we do pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray for a heart that's receptive. We pray that we might draw near to know you as you are and not as we think you are. Oh, Lord God, you are our God and we are your people. Teach us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, people sometimes ask, uh, how sovereign is God? That's kind of a strange question because uh, either God is sovereign over all things or he's not sovereign at all. You may need to remind yourself of this when you begin to question God's sovereignty, like when we watch the mayhem going on in our society, and we ask God, are, are you really in control? You know, and begin to doubt it. And we need to remind ourselves of this when we begin to doubt God's love for us because we're undergoing some sort of strain, some sort of suffering, some sort of adversity, some sort of loss, and we begin to question, to doubt His love for us. And God says this. This is what I'm going to call the key verse for today's passage. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord Jehovah, do all these things. Isaiah 45, 7. Do you have peace, joy, prosperity in your life right now? Have the lines fallen to you in pleasant places, as it says in Psalm 16? Well, guess what? That's by God's will. Are you enduring struggles? turmoil, or loss, have these lines fallen to you in unpleasant places? Well, guess what? That's by God's will also. <clears throat> and that's the hard part to accept <clears throat> and to receive. And yet, in the face of adversity, we are tempted to deny this truth of Scripture. It's a great temptation for us to deny that. We're tempted to blame God like Adam did in the garden. It's the woman you gave to me. And accuse Him of being unfair or being unjust. We deny that he's the potter and that we're the clay. We can make a God an idol out of our comfort. And we can demand that God justify himself if he takes it away from us. We run away from him in our pain and in our sorrow instead of running to him. Don't do that. Don't do that. So it never hurts to ask ourselves, is God the only God in my life? Do I see this world as His creation, sustained by Him alone? Have I thanked Him today for being my Redeemer, the one who formed me from the womb? Do I regularly seek wisdom in His Word and draw near to Him through prayer? Do I do that? Is Christ, in fact, my consolation and my comfort? 
whatever may come, do I hope in Him and trust in Him alone for my deliverance, for my daily bread? Does God's correction comfort me? Or does it anger me, frustrate me, seem to be in my way? And that's what we're going to look at today, the sovereignty of God in good times and bad, and how we should respond to it. Here's the premise. God is the one who brings judgment, and God is the one who also brings deliverance. He does both. Christ is judge of the nations, and Christ is our merciful Redeemer. He is both. Judgment vindicates God's justice. Deliverance proves God's love and His mercy. Both of those things are true. There is only one God. As I've shared before, God's correction of His children is very different from His wrath against His enemies. You may remember that from last month. I gave a sermon that I couldn't pronounce called God's Threshing Sled. But, at any rate, you once were enemies of God, right? You were children of wrath. That's who you once were. But Christ redeemed you. But Christ redeemed you. He drew you to God. He reconciled and restored you to the Father. You are safe in His hands. He prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. Doesn't He? So don't confuse God's correction and His wrath. Don't doubt his love when bad things happen. Know this. Bad things happen even if we've been faithful. That was part of uh, the prayer we heard this morning. Stuff is going on in Ukraine. Stuff is going on elsewhere in the world. And yet God's people are there enduring it. It's not his correction of them. It's not his punishment of them. Bad things happen even if we've been faithful. That was true of Job, wasn't it? Satan came to God, and God said, Have you seen my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth. And yet he let Satan have his way with him. Those who were carried off to Babylon included the faithful as well as the unfaithful. Daniel wasn't put in the lion's den because he was wicked, but because he was God's faithful witness. You see, it's not always about you. You may have that bumper sticker, but really, it's not all about you. Rather, it's all about God. As righteous Job said to his wife, after everything had been stripped from him, shall we accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? Our passage today is a declaration by God that he is sending his servant Cyrus to tear down the walls of Jerusalem and to take his people captive. Yay! It is his judgment on it for its ongoing wickedness. But in the same breath, God promises to restore his temple and to deliver his people out of his mercy. Is, that's why he does, out of his mercy, he's going to do that. He's going to rebuild those walls and restore his people. It's a prophetic promise of the Messiah to come. That's what we'll read about this morning. And so it shimmers, as I like to say, it shimmers back and forth between Cyrus in the physical realm and Christ in the spiritual realm. It's a picture of two conquerors. Cyrus will conquer the living and take them captive, but Christ will conquer sin and death and set the captives free. Before we begin, I want to talk about the name Cyrus. In the Old Testament, the meaning of a person's name was given as a picture of them, a snapshot of who this person is. For example, Jacob means heel holder. 
Yo, heel holder, dinner's ready. But why? It was because Jacob held his brother Esau. He held Esau's heel when the twins were born. And when he stole his brother's birthright, that picture of grabbing his brother's heel and pulling him back identified Jacob as a usurper, as a taker of what did not belong to him. But when he encountered God, he was given a new name, Israel, for he wrestled with God and with men and prevailed. That's in Genesis 32, 28. The name Cyrus, likewise, has a meaning. It gives us a picture, a snapshot of who this man is. Cyrus means possess the furnace. Yo, possess the furnace, dinner is ready. Isaiah is prophesying that a furnace is coming. A furnace is coming in the form of a man. God has ordained and anointed him for his purposes. This gives us a picture of Cyrus, future king of Persia. But figuratively, it also gives us a picture of Christ. How do I know that? Well, John the Baptist said this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with what? Fire. The Spirit is often represented as a flame. He creates a furnace, a crucible in which the broken image of God in us is recast in the image of Christ, our refiner. This picture fits with Daniel's prophecy in which the Ancient of Days, as he's called, is seated on a throne described as a fiery flame and a fiery stream issued from it. That's in Daniel 7, 9 and 10. These verses are along the bottom of your handout. This furnace, this conqueror, this anointed servant of God is also Messiah, Lord over all. He is the suffering servant that we're going to see in Isaiah 53. Our passage today is long. I hope you've taken the time to read it beforehand. In a few weeks, I'll be giving one that's going to cover three chapters. No, it's not going to be line by line. Oh, wait a minute. Yes, it's going to be line by line. And yet, and yet, I have done it in such a way that it will be done before 5 p.m. Anyway, I'm hoping you'll read ahead. Come with your questions. Hopefully, I'll be able to answer them, and, and the others will be able to answer them in our messages. So I'm going to provide some headings as we go along here today to break it up into sort of uh, bite-sized chunks. We begin with a repeated declaration by God, I am God or I am Lord, and there is no other. If you didn't know, this is repeated 13 times in Isaiah, beginning in chapter 43. So 13 times between then and now. We're in chapter 44. So how many is that? We call that a gob. It occurs over 70 times from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Must be something important for us to know. God is taking his people back to the basics when he says these things through the prophet Isaiah. Why? Because they have forgotten who their God is. They're worshiping idols instead of worshiping the living God. And so, here we go. Who is God? Isaiah 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord. Your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Taint no other. And what will God do? Well, as verse 24 ends, he says, I'm the one, verse 25, who frustrates the the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners. 
who turns around the worldly wise. If you're reading the ESV, you'll say, it doesn't quite say that, I know. I've, I've made some changes to the text of the ESV so it actually makes sense in English. <sighs> and makes their knowledge foolish. Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. We too, we too, sitting here this morning, we too are his messengers. Ambassadors for Christ, are we not? And therefore, who is this being written to? Us. <clears throat> so what is it that God declares? What does God declare? In this case, good news. We could even say gospel news right here in Isaiah in the Old Testament. He says, of Jerusalem she shall be inhabited. That's good news. And to the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. And saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. That's a promise. You can take that to the bank. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And it was, in part. So what is Cyrus's role in all this? Verse 45, 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, in case you were wondering, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. So who is leading Cyrus through all this? The Lord our God. To subdue nations before him. That's his role. He's going to subdue nations before him. Who's going to do that? God. God is going to do that. God is going to subdue those nations before him. If Cyrus is going to conquer, it's not going to be by his hand. It's going to be by God's. To loose the belts of the armor of kings, their defenses. What's he saying? So they cannot resist him. God's will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. What else is he going to do? He's going to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. This last phrase alludes to God's promise that he will go before us. We hear this morning, God will go before us, opening doors for the gospel, doors that may not be closed. He will open eyes to see, He will open ears to hear, and none may resist. In Revelation 3.8, this last phrase alluding to this, this opening of the doors, this promise to go before us, doors that may not be closed, it says this, I have set before you an open door. Who is He speaking to? Us. I have set before you an open door. Who is He speaking to? Christ. For we're united to Christ. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So what are our duties? Those are our two duties. To keep his word and not deny his name. Isaiah gives us a picture here of Christ, the head of his church. Even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. And so we keep his word, and we won't deny his name. You a Christian? You betcha. I can't believe you would say that. You'd admit that out loud in public. You betcha. I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Deal with it. <laughs> anyway. We won't deny His name, and His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, for He will save His people. Isn't that what Mary was told? And you shall name His name Jesus. Why? For He will save His people. He is Lord and Creator, and there is no other. He has laid down His life for us because He loves us. He will sustain us because He loves us. He will correct us because He loves us. Cyrus is but a shadow 
of things to come. Isaiah continues this theme that God will go before His anointed, pulling down strongholds and everything that exalts itself against Him. So what power has God given to Cyrus? Verse 2. It's chapter 5. It's okay. We've actually gotten further than you think. Verse 2. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places. Nothing is going to withstand him. This onslaught is coming and nothing can stop it. When God's judgment is executed, there is nothing to prevent it. There is nothing to stop it. It will seek and find all of its purposes. All of its outcomes are already be, uh, predetermined by God. No iron gates, no missile defense systems, nothing will prevent His judgment from coming. So, why will God do this? Have you been paying attention for the past month? <laughs> because God's people have gone astray. But there's another reason, and he says it here. Why will God do this? So that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you. Even though you don't know me, I name you. Here is this foreign king, not of Israel. And yet God has put a name upon him. He has called him his own. We were enemies, and yet God calls us now His own because of Jesus Christ. I will give you a name. I have done that, even though you don't know me. For us, He did that even before we knew Him. He called us from before the foundations of the world. As I said, the name Cyrus means possess the furnace. God has given him that name. Cyrus will be the smelter of his people to purge their dross. Would that fit on a t-shirt? Smelter of God's people. So, Even though Cyrus doesn't know God, he is acting as the right hand of God. He is not acting under his own power to fulfill his own purposes, even though he may think he is. Rather, he is the instrument of God to fulfill God's purposes for his people. For his people. For his glory and for his people. For his glory and for his people's good, God will do these things. God uses all men as He sees fit, even evil men. Oh no, my God wouldn't do that. Even evil men, God will use to His purposes, to His ends, to do His will. And He also works in us, His saints, to do His good pleasure. God is always at work. Didn't Christ say so? My Father is always at work, and so I am always at work. And then Christ handed off the baton to us and said, get to work. Do my Father's will in this world. Cyrus is not in control. God is. And to make that perfectly clear, God repeats the refrain that we began with beating that drum again as he has throughout the book of Isaiah. Verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Verizon commercial, right? Can you hear me now? <clears throat> Besides me, there is no God. There's no other God. I'm it. I equip you, even though you don't know me. Speaking to Cyrus, I will equip you. I will give you everything you need to fulfill my purposes for you, even though you don't even know me. He did that with Pharaoh. He did that with Nebuchadnezzar. He did that with... God will have his way. 
Why? Verse 6. So that my people, your ESV does not have my, it should have my. If you want to, you can put a little carrot in there and put in my. So that my people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. He's doing it for us. It's a statement to us. It's a declaration to us that our God is God and there is no other. Verse 7. The key verse, I think. I form light and create darkness. I make peace. The word there is shalom. I make shalom. This sense of well-being. I do that. And by the way, I create calamity. The sense of unpeace, unrest, mayhem, calamity. The one is in light and the other is in darkness. And yes, God will bring them both. Why? That he might be exalted above all others. I am the Lord. Word there is Jehovah, the covenant God. I am the Lord, Jehovah, who does all these things. And that's the message. That's the message. Pretty simple, even memorable. I am God. There is no other. You could fit it on a bumper sticker. You could put it on a t-shirt. But what's God's purpose? But what is God's purpose in this? I've got the message. What's the purpose? That the kingdom of God, that the heavenly realm might be displayed on the earth. That life from above might rain down upon the earth in order to make it fruitful. That the life of God might be made visible on the earth. Remember, Wolf talked to last week, was it? Uh, about the, the spectrum that we can see. Right? And so there's this humongous spectrum, okay? and we can see about that much of it. But in Christ, that whole spectrum, the invisible becomes visible in Christ. Those things which are spiritual and withheld and are mysteries and secrets revealed to us. He has given us eyes to see. That the heavenly realm might be displayed on the earth, that life from above may rain down on the earth in order to make it fruitful, that the life of God might be made visible on the earth, which is dead in sins and trespasses. And therefore... And therefore, God issues a command of salvation. <laughs> I love that. You, saved. <laughs> you, saved. God commands it. Verse 8. Shower from above, O heavens, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. In other words, it's going to rain down like rain from heaven, from the clouds, Soak itself in the earth so that all the fruitfulness, all the plants that he has planted, all those seeds that have been sown will rise up and produce their fruit in time. That the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. We're back in Genesis, aren't we? And God said, let there be life, let there be plants, let there be fish, let there be... God declared it. He's declaring it here. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it, created the earth. It's under my control, my domain, my dominion, my command, as are we. And yet created what? Well, created it all. The heavens and the earth, and the fruit of the earth, life and death, created by God. That's what verse 7 affirms, that both judgment and deliverance come from the same hand, the only hand, the only God, Notice that salvation and righteousness rain down as gifts of God. And that salvation and righteousness or justification and sanctification, those big Christian jargonese words, 
That justification, meaning declared righteous, declared right, good, and sanctification, that cleansing, that setting apart for God's purposes that takes place. Justification and sanctification cannot be separated. Justification results in sanctification. Always. No exceptions. Justification will always result in sanctification. Both are by God's grace. You've been in our distinctives class, you've heard us say this. We somehow or other think that justification, that we, we come to Christ and we're saved for eternity by God's grace, and then we've got to work at it <laughs> to preserve it, to make it good. No! No! No, sanctification is as much by God's grace as our justification is. Faith saves and instills life, but it also sanctifies. For without works, faith is dead, a fruitless branch that must be cut off and thrown into the fire. By saying that salvation and righteousness will be the fruit of this, we know this is a picture of Christ. Of Christ. How do we know that? Well, I'm sorry, but the man Cyrus can't save. <laughs> Not in his job description. He may be God's instrument for, for destruction, okay, and for judgment, but he's not God's instrument for salvation. No, no. He cannot confer righteousness, certainly not his own. As God's instrument, he can bring judgment for violating God's law, but he cannot justify us. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ can do that. Cyrus won't lay down his life for God's people, but Christ will. In fact, he did. Who then are we? In relation to God. God is creator. We are creature. It's a struggle to remember that every morning that we wake up. <laughs> he is the creator. I am the creature. Because I just as soon take over his job description as a heel grabber. That's when we put our foot in it. We may do what He will with us. He may do what He will with us if we object to His correction, if we say it's unfair, if we claim that it's somehow or other undeserved. God says this, verse 9. Whoa! Whoa to Him who strives with Him who formed Him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to Him who forms it, Hey man, what you making here? Or your handiwork say, well, he has no hands for handiwork. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? To question these things which are so basic and fundamental to our very existence, to our very nature. To question that is what we do when we say God is not in charge. When we say he may not do with me as he wills, he may do with me only as I want. Don't do that. He is potter. We are clay. Who are we to tell God what is right and wrong or what He may do with us? Take this to the bank. Pride, arrogance, rebellion, and this entitlement attitude that we see all around us must give way in the presence of the living God. They must. That's the point at which we recognize we are indeed that creature. That we are not God. We are not Creator. And we have no control over any of this. That's an illusion. That's what Job discovered. He said, you know what? I uttered what I didn't understand. <laughs> oh, 
all that bad stuff happened to him, and he says, I demand my day in court. God has to justify himself to me for what he's done to me. And in the end, when God said, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job responds, I uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me. Way far beyond my grasp, my comprehension. Couldn't get it. Couldn't wrap my head around it. Things I did not know. I misspoke myself. I do that a lot. Maybe you do too. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed Israel, <laughs> ask me about things to come. Seems funny to say that, but we know from the prior chapters, okay, that Israel has been asking their mediums and their idols what's going to happen. Get out that little glass sphere, okay, rub it, put a light behind it, right? Take some bones, throw them in a, in a dish. Divination. They're asking all these mediums and their idols what will happen, but they haven't asked God. They have not asked God. And he, he says, so come on, ask me about things to come. I'll tell you. I know the end from the beginning. I'll tell you what's going to happen. You ain't going to like it, but I'll tell you. So God asked them a question in return. Will you, people, command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? What, are you crazy? No, that's not in the text. But, but, if you wanted to, you could add in your Bible two question marks and an exclamation point. <laughs> I did that because it is such a defamatory claim on their part. It shows such a lack of understanding and of comprehension of who God is and who they are in relationship to Him. Our entire Christian walk is all about our identity, finding out who we are, not independent of God, but who we are in the sight of God. That's what he's trying to teach them here. They've utterly forgotten who he is and who they are to him. They object that God would send Cyrus to take them captive and to burn every branch that hasn't produced its fruit. So God reminds them, here we go again, verse 12. I made the earth and I created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host. I've stirred him up in righteousness. Who? This one that's coming. This fiery furnace that's coming. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city. My holy city. It doesn't say that here, but that's what it means. Find that out in other passages, okay? He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward. And we'll get more of that in Isaiah 55. Says the Lord of hosts. What does that title mean, the Lord of hosts? We sing it sometimes. The Lord of heaven's armies. <laughs> the ones that God commands, all those angels. Jesus says, look, if, if I wasn't willing to go to the cross, I could snap my fingers and I'd have 12 legions of angels show up on your doorstep, and man, you don't want that to happen. Right? He is the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of those armies. Nothing can withstand him. And he's making it known again. Do you remember who I am now? The one who separated the seas for you, brought you across on dry land. The one who sent the ten plagues upon Egypt. You remember now? I am the Lord your God, brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's me. Remember now? So we have to ask, is he speaking of Cyrus here or of Christ? And the answer is yes. 
<laughs> yes. Picture and substance. Shadow and fulfillment. Type and anti-type. What does that mean? I did some of those theological terms. Okay, but it means, it means a shadow, an in, 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 in indication of what's going to happen, and then the fulfillment of that thing. We see both of those going on at the same time in this passage. It shimmers back and forth between. So let's take a moment, review where we are so far. I got it, I got it. He's God, there is no other. Who is God? God is the only God, creator and sustainer of all things. He is our redeemer. He formed us from the womb. He is wisdom itself, and he fulfills all his promises. I'm always amazed when we come in on a Sunday morning and I prepared a sermon, haven't told anybody what's in it, and yet the lyrics, after lyric, after lyric, keep coming up on the board of all the things that are going to be in the message as if God is driving it home. Oh, he is. He is. What does he declare? After he empties Jerusalem, he's going to cause it to be re-inhabited. After he tears down its walls, he'll have them rebuilt on a new foundation. After he brings the flood, he will dry it up. He has ordained all this, including the approaching furnace in which he will purge our dross like a refiner's fire. He has ordained that as well. So how is Cyrus a type of Christ? Well, he's God's anointed one, it says so. He subdues the nations and strips them of their armor. He opens doors that none may close. All of those are indications, pointers to Christ. Why will God do this? That we may know that he is the Lord, the one who calls us by name. He puts his name on us. Book of Numbers. And so you shall bless them. Put my name upon them. This is how I will make my face to shine upon them. He puts his name upon us to mark us as his very own. Christian. Christian. I have given to you into the hands of my son, Jesus Christ, and none may take them from his hands because none may take them from mine. That's a promise. That's a promise. He is the potter. We are the clay. He may do with us as he pleases. Now, what else does God promise us as our inheritance after we have been grieved by various trials for a little while? That's how Peter puts it. <laughs> Understand, he was martyred for the faith. said, I'm not worthy to be martyred in the same way as Christ. Hang me upside down on that cross. Kill me that way. So he's not speaking lightly of these things. When we have been grieved by various trials for a little while, he has things in perspective, doesn't he? He sees everything in his life in an eternal perspective, and everything in this world seems to fade by comparison. It's being driven home here in the book of Isaiah. Verse 14, Thus says the Lord, The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They'll plead with you, saying, Oh, surely God is in you. God is with you. This is not said, said in a mocking way. This is the seriousness of this. They're going to come to you and plead with you. You are a man of God. You are a woman of God. Would you intercede for me in this thing that I'm going through in my life? Because I know God is with you. I haven't been with God, but God is with you. I can see it in the life that you live. And they will come to you in chains, bow down to you, plead with you. Surely God is in you and there is no other God, no God besides Him. I admit it. I confess it. It's true. Those who don't know God will confess that. He isn't talking about physical Israel. 
He is not talking about physical Israel, this little plot of land in the Middle East. That nation never rose to power again. Still hasn't. It's about the coming kingdom of God. It's about the coming kingdom of God. That's what this prophecy is about. As we'll see, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, as we heard at the opening this morning, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The meek shall inherit the earth. How so? How will we inherit the earth? Because I got this house picked up up in the Broadmoor. Okay, so if I could have that one, Lord, that'd be great. No, <laughs> no. It's in the sense that everything is being put under Christ. Everything is coming under His dominion. Being united to Christ, whatever is His, is ours. Why? Because we are joint heirs with Christ in all of this. The eyes of our understanding are being enlightened even today, even this morning. We know what is the hope of our calling and what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Ephesians 1, 17-21, good passage to read. The riches of this world and all that it has to offer our greatest desires is to be rich and famous, to be an influencer in social media. <laughs> now, the riches of this world, all that it has to offer are nothing, nothing at all, zilch, nada, in comparison to what we have in Christ. And that's a cause for celebration and for worship, and that's why we're here this morning. For the things of God are hidden from men, but they are revealed to those who trust in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And guess what? No one knows the Father except the Son, and, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. If he had not been revealed to you, you would not be a follower of Jesus Christ. It wasn't because you were smart. Read God's words and, well, I know what that means. <laughs> no, no, God revealed him to you. God revealed this plan of salvation to you. We see the same thing here in Isaiah's prophecy. Portents of things to come. Revealed to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Eyes given to them, ears given to them by God. Verse 15, truly, truly, you are a God who hides himself. In other words, you are mysterious. You are not blatantly obvious to the human eye, who a nature that has not been renewed. O God of Israel, the Savior, all of them, verse 15, 16, sorry, all of them, all of these foreign nations of their foreign gods are put to shame and they are confounded and will be again in our age. The makers of idols go in confusion together. Their heads are spinning. And then come God's gospel-promised Israel, His chosen people. Verse 17. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. Praise God. Praise God. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Why not? For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God. It's in parentheses in the ESV. It's as if he's going, he's God. See the parentheses? He's God. Who formed the earth and made it? He established it. He didn't create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. In case you missed the memo. So God, unlike the claims that are made about God by those who don't know God, God 
is not a watchmaker who left his creation running unattended. God is ever-present, ever-active, ever-accessible. Again, he reveals who he is. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 19, I didn't speak in secret. I may be hidden, but I didn't speak in secret. I proclaimed it from the mountaintops in a land of darkness. I didn't say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain, won't do you any good. I never said that. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Not men, not governments, not judges. I, the Lord, declare what is right. How then are we to respond to this promise, to this truth revealed to us by our loving God? How are we to respond to an approaching calamity that will be brought to our doorstep by God? If we survive it, what will be our testimony as His witnesses in the world, as His remnant people? God will call the nations to account for their wickedness. He will judge them. He's going to spend His wrath upon them. It's coming. And as He does, He calls upon us to be His witnesses that He is righteous in all that He does. What kind of God you've got that would do such a thing, that would allow such a thing to happen? Let me tell you who He is. He is the righteous God and you are the unrighteous. And today, your debt has come due. Stand your ground. He calls upon us to be His witnesses that He is righteous in all He does, even when He brings disaster. How will they defend themselves against the charges that He levels against them? Who will they call upon to deliver them in their hour of need? They're going to come to you and say, Would you please pray for me? Sounds like Simon the Magician. Yo, Peter, you know, I realize I've, I've, I've really had bad motives and I really shouldn't have done all that stuff, but would you pray for me? I can imagine Peter rolling his eyes <laughs> as he walked off. <laughs> clueless. Clueless. They're clueless. Verse 20. This is almost funny. Almost. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near. Come on, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Come on. I, your Lord Jesus Christ, am your judge. Go ahead. Give me your defense. I want to hear this. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Go ahead. Talk among yourselves. Figure out what it is you're going to give as a, as a defense to my accusations against you. This is being said to our age as well. This is being said to our age as well. This generation worships idols. Have you noticed? There is no fear of God. None. Men have no shame for their sins, no repentance for their deeds, no remorse for the harm that they're causing. The nations will look at the devastation they've caused and confess that they provoked God. They provoked God to judgment. Wasn't that they woke up one morning and everything was going swell? No, no. No, no. They provoked God to exercise His wrath upon them. And they're going to reap the whirlwind which they have sown. It's Hosea 8, 7. Verse 21 here in Isaiah. So who told this long ago? <laughs> Imagine God going, so who told all this long ago? <laughs> Come on, tell me. Who declared it of old? Was it not I? The Lord, and there's no other God besides me, a righteous God and, and a Savior. A righteous God who will execute judgment and a Savior who will deliver you. 
in mercy. And there is none besides me. Nobody else you can run to. Nobody else you can whine to. Nobody else you can seek to be delivered by. I'm it. Now here's the gospel call. We have a gospel truth that we've heard proclaimed. Now comes the gospel call. The summons to respond. Proclaimed by Isaiah who is looking forward to Christ. Verse 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Verse 23, I have sworn by myself, from my mouth have gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me void. My word will accomplish all the purposes for which I send it. And then here it is, the one that's quoted in the New Testament. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, speaking of the Messiah to come, only in me are righteousness and strength. To him, that is to Jesus Christ, shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. 700 years before Christ walked the earth. Jesus echoed this when he said, they hated me without cause. He was quoting Psalm 69.4. They rebelled against him when they said, We will not have this man to reign over us. Luke 19, 14. They stand condemned by their own words, having rejected God's offer of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And now God repeats his promise to graciously deliver his people. Verse 25. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel, the children of the promise, as Paul calls calls them in Romans 9, 8. The children of the promise. All the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Oh, it's going to happen. (laughs) When God calls us, we will come. Most willingly. Most willingly. God ordained it, and yet I come most willingly. So do you. How could I not? How could you not? And so we sing, I will glory in my Redeemer whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Isn't that what we sing sometimes? We here today know we are confident, we are convinced that not one of all those whom God has given into the hands of Christ for redemption on the cross shall be lost. That's a promise, John 18, 9. Not even one. He is our hope and stay, our sure foundation. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He has delivered us into the kingdom of God. He has delivered us into the kingdom of God. He's not going to. He has. His kingdom, where we will abide forever in mansions of glory and in endless delight. Again, we sing blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. I'll close with a few of those probing questions I began with. Is God the only God in your life? Do you see this world and all that is in it as His creation sustained by Him alone? Do you thank Him for being your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb? Do you seek Him out in His Word and through prayer, knowing that He is wisdom itself and that He will fulfill all His promises to you? Do you trust that if He tears down any walls that you have erected, to keep him out, or to protect yourself against adversity. My bank account, I still got money in it, man. That won't protect you against adversity. That he will also rebuild them for you 
When he takes them away, he will also rebuild them for you on the foundation of Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if God brings a flood and sweeps away everything you're holding on to, that he will also dry up that flood? And this too shall pass. Do you accept that he ordains all things and has the right to purge your dross in the refiner's fire? Does that diminish his love for you? It cannot. It cannot. It cannot diminish his love for you. God's correction is done in love. It's done in mercy. It's done in grace. It cannot diminish his love for you. Will it diminish your love for him? Will it diminish your love for him? I, I, I pray that it won't. Is Christ all your hope, your consolation, and your comfort, come hell or high water? Will you trust in him alone for your deliverance and as your daily bread? He's going to give that to you day by day. I pray that you will. As Spurgeon observed, and I'll put this up on the board for you, how seldom do we seek counsel at the hands of Israel? I'm sorry, at the hands of the Lord. How often do we go about our business without seeking his guidance? In our troubles, how we constantly struggle to bear our burdens ourselves instead of casting them upon the Lord. Why? That he may sustain us. Let me urge you then to make use of your God. <laughs> what a great way to put it. Let me urge you then, make use of your God. Make use of him in prayer. Go to him often because he is your God. Run to him. Run to him. Tell him all your needs. Chuck Spurgeon. For God declares, I am the Lord who does all these things. I am God over all, and there is no other. Therefore, therefore, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, your word is rich. Oh, the pictures that it gives to us. Oh, the promises that you make to us there. Oh, the comfort that we find there. Oh, the wisdom, the wisdom that is everywhere to be found, everywhere to be applied to the life that we're living. Oh, Lord God, cause us to seek you out. Cause us to run to you. Oh, Holy Spirit, open up our minds to that. Soften our hearts to that. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you laid down your life for us, that you, in fact, are our deliverer, our redeemer, the one who conquered this world, who conquered sin and death on our behalf. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.